You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Hello and welcome to Conversion Nation. Uh, this is Manuel DaCosta, your host from Effective Experiments. And you are watching us and listening to us yet again. Uh, this time we have new guests joining us. And uh, we have Un Svansum from Doberman in Sweden, in Stockholm. And we also have Valerie Kroll uh, joining us again. Uh, hey Val, good to have you on again. Hello. Thank you. And, and Un, you're joining us for the first time. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our, our listeners and our viewers? Of course. My name is Un Svanström. I am a Swedish UX designer at the design, innovation and experience firm Doberman. And uh, I am currently at Spotify, helping them with their uh, car integrations apps. Nice, nice. So at Conversion Nations, we have uh, conversations about conversion optimization, and in this case, UX as well. Uh, What are we talking about today, Un? So today we're talking about how UX and conversion optimization work together because I find that a lot of the time when optimization is happening I'm not even in the room I'm not even aware that optimization is happening until I see the thing that I've crafted so carefully out in the wild and be like oh what 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 happened here we I I spent a lot of energy on this why does it look completely different Uh, so that's what I was to discuss today that's an interesting take. And, and Val, you and I were talking yesterday and you said your husband is a UXer. And I think he, ha- he holds a different opinion to things, if, you, if, if, you, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, uh, because of what we both do, our dinner conversation is incredibly nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we agree on a lot of things, um, but he kind of sees, and, and this is... Um, a common opinion I, I know from some other people in the industry that what the optimizers do sometimes slows things down. Um, so I think that if we were to look at a list of opportunities or test ideas that the UX designer, or at least some that I've worked with, would put more things in the category of we should just go do that. And I might put more things in the let's experiment with that in a controlled setting. And so um, sometimes he perceives testing as uh, a roadblock to some of the progress. Yeah, and so this is another conversation that I've heard uh, time and time again from UXers, and this is why your case was quite unique in the in the sense that when you said as a UXer you want to see uh, you want to be at the table when they're running these experiments, and you want to be involved, um, and the general opinion of UXers is like you know we know what we're doing, we know what the best practices are. Uh, and to some extent, that is that is true. You know, you want to get the baselines right. You want to have a, uh, a consistent experience and so on and so forth. But where does UX stop and where does conversion optimization begin? I think, like, I want to try and explore that on this conversation more. So 
Un, I'm interested in the why you want to experiment when you, surely you know everything if you're a UXer. I know, of course, everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it just goes back to like, why am I a UX designer? It's, it, we do our own types of experiment. We ask users things. That's an experiment. And I just think, uh, okay, so, so here's the thing. Iteration when you're a UX designer is often a lie. You're like, yes, we'll just release this MVP. And then you never see that project again, ever. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's what gets me. It's like so many good ideas are just lost because yeah, the, once something is shipped, it goes over to uh, conversion optimization and or in, at the best case. And if that doesn't happen, well, there's just no iteration on the thing that was released. So I think we would just save so much time if we just got together at the beginning of optimization work so that some of the ideas that were going to be in the next version actually end up in the experiments. Yeah, so we, we were saying about uh, UX and CRO clashing in um, a lot of what I talked about in previous podcasts and previous discussions is about breaking down the silos, not just mm -hmm. uh, restricted to UX and CRO but also, you know, sales and marketing and everyone kind of sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya, but reality is different. Where are we falling apart, Val? I mean, in your interactions, uh, working um, client side and now agency side, and when you kind of come across all these other UXs outside home, <laughs> how do you kind of deal with that? How, how, is, how are those conversations going? Um, yeah, I so before my time in digital analytics, I was actually in market research. So I'm familiar with like how to leverage qualitative sources such as like focus groups and ethnographies and things like that and understand the power of, of those data points different and separate but equally as important as quantitative data. So I work really closely with my UX designers and my design teams. Um, in, in every role that I've had. My first um, role in digital analytics when I was at the American Medical Association, I actually sat right next to the whole design team. And when we were first bringing on AB testing, there weren't actual resources uh, time carved out to work on AB testing optimization. So it was all like favor-based. So I was buying lots of coffees, lots of donuts to get some favors for people to mock some things up or like think things through because I know like the boundaries of like what I'm able to do. So just because I can get into a WYSIWYG editor and play with the CSS and throw in a couple important tags and make it appear the way I want to, it doesn't have the same touch as someone who has trained in this and has studied in this and has a different skill set than me to really bring more to the table. And so um, besides all the favors of food and coffee and donuts, one of the things that I put, put together for them was kind of like what we call these like impact books. So I, I think I've said on, in previous conversations, Manuel, that I feel like CRO is how you monetize so many of your other digital analytics activities. That's how you monetize your web analytics program. And I feel the same way about UX. And so what we would do is put together like uh, screenshots and things like that to show the impact of the different tests that came from my designers as a way for them to add it back to their portfolio to say, not only did I make this thing that looks amazing and is 100% within design constraints of material design and you know we're using ghost buttons and all that kind of stuff but we made the company xyz amount of dollars because of this new experience 
so I work super closely with UX designers, even before I was married to one, <laughs> because <laughs> that's how you can get that really good perspective on like on the types of tests where you're talking about reducing friction and creating seamless flows and, and making sure that you're removing all barriers from someone taking those valuable actions on your site. So UX has like always been a source of data. Like there's always been great ideas coming from the UX team, but we also use UX um, and the, the information that comes from those individuals in our strength of evidence calculation. So um, we say that if this came from UX, that it's rooted in data similar to if you pulled a report in Adobe Analytics, that that is a stronger idea and is more likely to succeed in a lot of cases than something that came from someone's gut or something that they saw out in the wild. Mm -hmm. So I work very closely. You, you, I think you'd be a fan of my process. And I know that some, you, you, you have like a bad rap or a bad idea of some people, but I think there's <laughs> some good ones out there. <laughs> a part of it. No, it could potentially come down to how UX is perceived in the company as well, right? I mean, this is even keeping aside like UX's like fancy designs and stuff like that. But people perceive, and this is again the, the incorrect perception. I mean, you can say the same for conversion optimization, like changing button colors and quick wins and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're trying to move away from that. What's your take on the perception of how people view UX and then as you try and move towards, hey, let's experiment that, what's that kind of pushback you're getting over there? Well, I mean, the thing is now at a company like Spotify, like experimentation is happening all the time. Um, but here, and I see at other companies as well, is that uh, good data analysts are like um, hard to come by. So just getting your experiments and uh, getting experiments analyzed is always the issue. And I can understand how it could feel like a roadblocker. And I've heard it go the other way around that, oh, having user testing is a roadblocker. We don't have time for, to wait for user testing. Or we don't, or designers saying, we don't have time to wait for like just testing it, A-B testing, let's just release it. And um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> it was about the perception of of UX in the organization. So what yeah. you a UX which kind of almost pigeonholes you in this kind of role that you need to perform. So then when you're trying to go over and above that, that's where, you know, what is your take on that? Right. Usually when you go over and above people are really appreciative it's like oh wait you're interested in what i do <laughs> and, and i and <laughs> i find that again and again and it's like why do we create these silos in our companies when everyone just wants to work together it's, um yeah and i think but i think there is a difference in like who has um whose opinion matters the most in a company. Some companies are very design driven. Some companies are driven by uh, like developers and some companies have like, who has the most say in deciding like the pace of work. And I think um, for now, I, I'm very fortunate to be at a very, a company that's very design oriented. And therefore maybe we get more say in and stuff. Mm. Your opinion has more weight and clout in, that in some of those discussions. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 
And where, where, do, where does the, co the, the friction happen then? So, Valerie, in terms of um, where UXs or any other you know, department refuses to kind of work in that sense, where does, where does the root cause of that friction happen? So where I've noticed friction is usually when it comes down to priorities and like uh, how projects mm. are promised at a higher level. So UX already as a team, because they're usually like a team of, of design, they're like, I've, I haven't worked in like an embedded team um, where I see it, they already have their work planned. It's not like they're like sitting there like waiting, like, oh, I really wish someone would come at my desk and like ask me a question. Like they have their own. <laughs> and so when I'm a CRO and I'm looking through all my opportunities and I'm working with product and marketing and trying to figure out what opportunities we're going to like chip off next, if one of the ideas that we, we pick is really design heavy, or we need a lot of UX weigh-in and we're like, hey, we want to work with you on this. And they're like, whoa, 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 like this is our priority or like we don't have time to work on it or we're going to be changing the way we approach this. And so by the time you test that, it will be obsolete, right? So like just coordinating the timing of things that are happening, especially big initiatives and trying to find time for all the resources to work on each other's uh, roadmaps. Um, that's where I've noticed a lot of friction. So that's why I think that some of the embedded teams where you have like a product person, a UX person, an analyst, like kind of all working together with a developer that maybe they can move a little bit faster and there's less friction just because you all are marching to the same drummer and the same work is promised to everyone up, up above. So that model, which you talked about cross-functional teams is what Spotify have, if I'm not mistaken, the squads and the tribes yeah. where they have uh, a squad of, you know, different people working towards one objective. And I think there's a slide online somewhere, quite a few years old now, uh, you know, someone working on the, on the play button area and someone working on the, on the playlist and so on and so forth. So everyone's kind of optimizing their own uh, part of the application or the site and stuff. And, and that as you coincidentally are at Spotify, which kind of explains that. So are you in that environment right now where you are working cross-functional uh, in, in a cross-functional team? Yes, yes, I am. But uh, CRO is not a part of that uh, oh, wow, okay. team structure right now. Interesting. I mean, it changes all the time. Yeah. Sure. So for, for me, like one, so I can't really say much about like Spotify from this point of view, but when I have seen friction, <laughs> but when I've seen friction before between design and CRO is that designers spend so much time on their design and then somebody else comes in and be, wants to be like oh i have some Im like improvements to make and uh giving design critique which it is saying that i want to improve this and this and this and this and this and this and that thing over here should go over there um that's very that can be very sensitive for a lot of people to be like that like yeah, I know that your baby's you, ugly. <laughs> yeah, you made this ugly thing. Why is it live? <laughs> <laughs> or like, or, or it's beautiful, but it doesn't. Uh, yeah, doesn't perform. Is what we hear sometimes, uh, and and that hurts a lot of people's like a designer egos uh, could be very fragile. Uh, so to have to build a relationship and build trust, uh, to be able to have that conversation together, I think is really important. 
I, I completely agree with you. And the way that I've approached that in the past, like, first of all, I think that if ever a design has gone out and I, like, my opinion is I don't like it. First of all, I recognize I'm not a designer, so I'm probably not the best person to critique it. But second of all, that designer probably got strong armed into Frankensteining something together in some like conference room with 12 people forcing you to uh, roll back things that you wanted anyway. So I don't assume that you love anything. <laughs> that you <put> <laughs> But I would say like, okay, so this is what I'm observing in the data that people are falling off at this part of the funnel or when they get here, they're exiting the page. Like, help me make sense of this because like your opinion on why it might not be working is way better than me saying, I totally know it's this one button or it's this one form field or this copy is, this micro copy is super confusing. Like, I'm not gonna pretend to know that. So I think by making it like a collaborative problem that you you're trying to solve together like I've always had uh, really uh, like a lot of success in that approach I love that but I think a lot of people and this goes for like everyone uh, is that you kind of want to sound smart at work and feel like you have made some good observations and therefore when you give critique and say something's negative you sound smarter that's like a mm. uh, uh, a thing, especially, um, yeah, if, if you feel insecure in your role or in a meeting, it's like critique something and you'll sound smarter. And I think that's where <laughs> a lot of friction <laughs> really comes from. So I love your approach, Valerie, must say. <laughs> no, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I, you know that person who's in the room who uh, is feeling insecure. But I think that the... Um, trying to solve it yourself, especially because I don't have those skills. Again, like the reason that there's all these roles on this team is because we all come with a different set of strengths and a, a different lens to on how we're going to tackle this problem. Like I know we're going to get to a better spot if I don't try to weigh in on design, because that's not, that's not why I'm hired. That's not where I'm going to add value. So I, I just see it as like, let, let's leverage all the brains that and, and the way that they've been intended to tackle this issue to, to get to a better solution like all together because let's like take this I, I am not ashamed of like a big winning test taking that on a road show put on the dog and pony for everyone in the organization bring everyone say like look look at all that we did together like no shame in that <laughs> but like you have to make sure that you're approaching it the right way up front so you can get to that place with, with the, this topic of ego coming in as well. This has actually come up in quite a few different episodes this season of, of Conversion Nations as well. And you've mentioned about designers having that ego and designers being, you know, a bit um, touchy when their design is critiqued. I have a feeling that the same goes for conversion optimizers as well, because when people are creating experiments, they, what's their default mode? I'm designing it because I know this will win. That's that's the kind of mentality out there, even though we want to experiment and say, you know what, I don't actually know the answer to this. I have a feeling that it might be this and design, mm. design input can factor into it, but let's put it out there and see if it wins or it doesn't win and mm. we'll take the learnings and move forward. But it's that, you know, trying to be really modest and humble about it and saying like, you know what, I don't know the answers. And, but this kind of then goes at odds with corporate expectations of you. Like you're hired because you know the answers. You can design perf pixel perfect stuff and all that. Can. And you're telling me you don't know the answers. You know, out. <laughs> so yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> at odds, and this is where it kind of has to bubble up. And as you said as well, Un, is it like a design-driven organization? Is it 
uh, a developer-led organization or is it an experiment-driven organization? And that whole, we're mm -hmm. trying to get people into that culture of experimentation, into that mindset of experimentation, but it's that mindset of being, you know, I don't know the answers, but I want to try and test and see if I can move the needle forward. And if I can't move it with that kind of idea, then let's take the learnings from that, move from that, move forward with that. And this is, I think, where we can start to come together in, in that sense. You know, you have your UX mm -hmm. people that will provide the design knowledge and the, the, you know, the conversion optimizers like us might say, look, you know, this is what we're seeing in the data. What ideas can you bring to the table? What ideas can I bring to the table? And then really put it out there, put it in the wild and see if we can actually get an answer from it. That's my take on that, you know, in, in the sense of how, otherwise it's, it, we're kind of moving in different directions, like design saying, yeah, I've done my job, here it is. And then, as you say, your work is then taken on and experimented on. And you're like, hang on, that's completely different from what I did. But if you were involved in that process, it would. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen one of those like CRO UX conflicts firsthand or been part of one? I've, I've seen, well, I work with a lot of companies through effective experiments and, you know, you hear all these stories day in and day out, uh, but I'm more interested mm -hmm. in Valerie. So like, you know, from York donuts and, uh, you know, coffee kind of thing, that aside, <laughs> what about in, in mindset organizations, uh, uh, sorry, in agent, uh, working as an agency on the outside viewing client organizations, how does that work right now? Yeah, so really quickly, I'll just, to, to go back to one of your earlier points, Manuel, just briefly, I think that humility is a huge part of what makes a good analyst and a good UX designer because you're willing to be open to new ideas and you're, you're excited about being proven wrong because that mm -hmm. means you have more information. Because either you're wrong and you are willing to acknowledge it or you're wrong and you do, right? And so if it's only going to make you better, like, let's just get excited about learning. So I try, I try to treat my role more as like a facilitator. Like if I can get, I might not have all the best ideas myself, but if I know the best way to get those ideas and to get the most out of my product team and to get the most out of UX, then I'm more successful. So I think that that's a huge part of it. So I completely agree with you. Back to conflicts in the past. Um, I, as, as you will find out when I'm above no tactic to get someone excited about what I do. <laughs> So I remember there was a test where one of our UX designers disagreed with our product team on how we should address some microcopy. And so I said, like, that's something we can test both of these. We don't need to, like, you know, do this in the conference room. We can let our users decide. Um, mm. And so we had, like, a three-way test. And so it was control. And I named the variants Ben and Mark. And so their uh, name uh -huh. too. So it was the Ben versus Mark test, and like I got people like super excited, like who will win, UX or product? And so it was just like a fun way to like gamify it and like make light of the fact that like there was two opinions, which were both good ones. UX won. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was good. I think, um, and in my role today, like where I see my clients struggle is mostly with being able to get more time from their UX team. Um, and I think that part of it, and I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts Un, on this, is that there's sometimes a misconception of 
what UX is, that it kind of gets grouped together with graphic design and visual design and interface design. And we're just that we just say like, hey, we need a UX person to create this wireframe. And it's like, well, maybe that's not the right, you know, person for that skill. Cause within UX, there's like content architecture and there's like so many different facets of it. Like UX researchers yeah. is another um, area to go deep in that. So do people interpret um, ever how you can be leveraged in the process? And do you think that that introduces friction? Well, yeah. And I mean, every UX designer, I mean, it, it's a field that's really boomed over the past, like, five years, I would say. So now there's like so many different interpretation of what a UX designer is and does. Some are like full stack designers who do everything from like concepting all the way out through the pixels, but oh, those are still pretty rare, I would yeah. say, who do everything super well. Uh, and I think, yeah, so a lot of UXers are heavily so what i see a lot is like ux being heavily involved in like early concepts and then like being done and getting a new like oh what's the concept for this new project that we want to launch and having only that like research and then going to like like maybe into development but not all the way sometimes it's like no 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 now we need you to focus heavily on this i think that's where a lot of the friction uh enters yeah and that makes sense for like why you're surprised by some of what you see in prod <laughs> yeah because exactly. you're in those early stages right where, where's the overlap like why is it not that we start like that i because i would love to like if there's going to be experimentation and, and just to have like onboarding. I don't know. Can you say onboarding or handoff? I hate the word handoff though. But, <laughs> uh, no. It's like a, it's like a factory line, right? Here you go. You're no, no. But, but it's like, you can, you, I mean, that is the problem. You can't really remember, like work on everything simultaneously. Like everything that I've been doing the past year, I can't be like, can't be top of mind. So, and if experimentation is happening somewhere else, then oh, I can't. Mm. It would make sense that, you know, things like your designs that you're working on and, you know, you're handing off to someone else, you know, that you're kept up to date on where that is. I mean, it, it kind of serves you to know that as well, because that would then factor into future iterations or future, future work. So, how have you communicated those challenges upstream? Up, upstream, that sounds like sort of such a corporate, <laughs> corporate uh, thing to say. Uh, yeah, how have you communicated to other people in the organization about this challenge, about this gap that, and you know, whether it has been addressed or not? So like when you're working at an agency, what you do is a lot of the time is just like a concept to provoke or lead this company into their future, whatever the future of their product should be. And of course, like once the budget is up, you don't know, you don't know what it is. So I propose like we would need to look at how that type of like super abrupt agency handover maybe isn't the best always for like, remembering ideas and keeping ideas on board. So 
Um, I think that's one of my my issues as well. It's like so it's the constraints of the agency because you got you guys have a set amount of hours that you're working on. Mm -hmm. You put in the hours and then it's like the next project afterwards, and then this one's completely forgotten about. Valerie, your agency side right now as well. So is that something similar that you anticipate happening? I mean, from generally from a from even from an experimentation side of side of things, like the hours or um so I, I'm relatively new to to my role. So I would say that like one of the things that we establish for any clients that we're working on for program level support is the concept of a learning library or a repository where people can access those learnings. And that helps mm -hmm. minimizing onboarding time when someone's new to the organization or someone switches teams or um, switches roles. Um, just to make sure that everyone has access to the information of what's already been done. And so that's the primary mechanism um, that we recommend and that's been that's been working well. But um, I would say that I, I started my career on the agency side. I went in house for a couple roles and now I'm back on this side. And it's totally true that like you have a much more narrow scope into how the problem or question was created and what happened afterwards on this side and you're that you're much more ingrained with that, but you also get the politics and you know the the slower timelines at times. Sometimes you have to hire that agency to say the same thing that you've been saying so that people trust you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's pros and cons to both, but I definitely think that there all there's there's probably always going to be something lost in the handoff when you're external, just because you're not always going to be uh, included in those meetings that people will never put on your calendar. Like there's not mm. that walking past your desk conversation where there's that information sharing that sometimes sparks a lot of good ideas. And so um, I think that that's, that creates um, some, some issues with handoff of information, but I think it also provides other opportunities. So it's a pro and a con, I completely yeah. agree with you. And I don't know how you completely solve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, something I find really fun to do uh, honestly is to have like a just joint workshops because it doesn't have to take a lot of time but just like ideate together or like bring the people back into the room for an hour and and just have like okay so we're gonna start like doing some heavy duty experimentation what what are our joint ideas and i think that would help so much you need to get the donuts and the coffee as well, though. <laughs> See, we that's got good donuts, though. So. <laughs> that's the thing you've been missing. I've learned all of Valerie's tricks over here. On, on this <laughs> and if you need to prove a point, hire the agency, get them in, say the same thing. <laughs> but with experimentation, again, it, it sort of goes back to this ego thing, right? And, mm. and um, with good UXs, that humility of saying, yeah, you know what? I'm putting my designs on the line. If it works, it works. And what's your take on that? And would you be able to, personal question, would you be able to do that as well? To be able to do, like put to my put designs, designs on the line and say like, you know, I'm willing to be proven wrong. I think that's so much up to the company culture. I mean, me personally, I'm like, yeah, go for it. Prove me wrong. That would be fantastic. But company culture also dictates how you will react within 
uh, when being proved wrong. Because uh, if the company culture isn't about we experiment, we learn together, okay, so this was a failed experiment, no big deal. If that's not there, and it's like, you were the one who was wrong, we will now never hire you again. But like, then if you don't want to be wrong. On Apple Podcast, yeah. you need to watch the video version of this. This is amazing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People listening to this are clueless as to what's going on right now. So watch the video right. version of this. <laughs> that was quite dramatic. I mean. <laughs> I appreciated it. And I think that that, I think some of that responsibility falls on the CRO because the win rates, if you are a best in class program, it's between 20 to 30%. It also takes into account like what your, your markers of success are and like how big of a bite you're taking out of these uh, different ideas, obviously, but it's not, it's not in the 90s. So you need to be able to communicate the value of a test when it doesn't win. And that's why if you always set them up to learn something, you're like reducing the, the risk of, of having a bad experience when you report out those results that it's still mm -hmm. worth meeting a lot of times to talk about a test that didn't win just as it is to meet when, when, it, when there is a winning test idea. So I think that you can get people comfortable with taking risks by showing that it's not a complete loss of time, that it wasn't a waste of resources um, on the design side, on the development side, CRO side, that there's still something to be learned. I absolutely think that a big part of that responsibility falls in the CRO. So yeah, you can point some fingers if that's not happening there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you mentioned that in the last podcast, right? Uh, well, a couple of episodes ago, moving from CRO to what are we calling it? IRO? Um, <laughs> It's rate optimization or something like that. We're still, we're still trying to figure out the name, but yeah, <laughs> that direction where every test, even if it doesn't win, uh, it's, there's a learning there. And yeah, that's the responsibility of the conversion optimizer because you normalize that kind of, you know what, it's, it's not one, but here's what we learned out of it. So yeah, sorry, and I kind of interrupted you just as you were starting to speak there. <laughs> Uh, but something I think designers can get better at too is delivering versions to be tested and not just be like, here is the final, final version. Here is a deck with the solution and it's finished. But be like, here is the first A-B test I think that you should run. And that also puts a lot of pressure off of me being right, right? But it's like, yeah, here's a, here's a test and you go run it and see what happens. That, that is actually, you know, the, the best case scenario in this, in the fact that you get two people that are, you know, they've, they've accepted their own kind of shortcomings and they're working towards it. And, you know, it's an mm -hmm. ideal scenario. I don't know if it's, it's too utopian to kind of uh, envision, but, you know, one can hope that in, yeah. in your organization for people listening that your UXer will come to you and say, this isn't the final design, this is something you can test and for you to even communicate the test that you have run uh, where they mm -hmm. not, you know, produce the result you expected, but at least you've got that learning out of it as well. Uh, what's your take on that, Valerie? Yeah, I totally, again, like UX has been a super successful source of test ideas um, in terms of 
not only like the winning the win rate, but like what we're learning from it. And so um, I like taking those ideas, even if you don't have your mocks yet, like even if you're not at a, a lo-fi wireframe level, like even if you have this like concept of like, if we tried this way forward, I think this would be better for users, like give it to us. Like, let's get that in the idea bank because I want to like make sure that that's included in deciding what opportunities we're gonna take advantage of next. Um, and I love your point about like, giving us more stuff that's like not pixel perfect or or polished that there's like because you have a process to to before you will down to the one that you pass along you have internal yeah. meetings where you're debating if it's single column or two column or you know whatever the the decision points are and yeah i think like leveraging experimentation especially on the product side can be incredibly valuable there Good. So I think we're we're in in we're kind of agreeing over here on some kind of you know the the action plan that people listening to this should take. So can we summarize that? Anyone want to summarize what we should do uh, for people listening to it? Action points that they can do right away after putting down their earphones or you know turning off this uh, this video. What can they do? Buy donuts. <laughs> I, I was going to say that as step one. I the shop buy some donuts and that step two Valerie after that <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, where it's possible I think that the tighter collaboration between CRO and UX can only lift all boats like there's nothing nothing lost there uh, from a tighter partnership um, and I think that creating more touch points between the two especially if you're siloed um, is probably going to benefit not only the stuff that you work on together but other other work is probably going to spread. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's any other points to, to bring up there. But I don't, I don't feel animosity. I don't feel like it's CRO versus UX. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. And I think anyone that sees it that way is, I think they've got a chip on their shoulder, if anything. Like the way I see UX and CRO and any other kind of department, everyone's working towards the same goals in the organizations, or in the case of Spotify, working towards their squad goals or their tribe goals or whatever. But they yep. could be working together. Otherwise, you know, um, you know, we could talk about company culture, as you said. Uh, I think there is a role of company culture kind of helping that uh, along, you know, trying to foster those uh, relationships because, you know, you might get um, sometimes when the company culture uh, encourages animosity because they've got different mm. KPIs, you know, and, and we've seen that happen with developers where we're trying to push stuff, yeah. stuff through. They've got a pile of uh, work that they need to complete, you know, clash again over there. So I think with UX, it's, it's a lot, you know, closer in terms of domain, um, you know, UX and experimentation. And if UXers are more open-minded uh, and conversion optimizers are more willing to, you know, share their own shortcomings, I think we'll be in, in a better position as well. So yeah, donuts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if, if I can and reference, also, what's that, sorry? Sorry, and also find the overlap of your work. It's like, because everyone is super busy already. We know, we know that, but there is going to be some overlap where uh, you can actually help each other and not just be like another meeting. Uh, so I, I was actually going to reference something over there because this was um, in, in episode two of the series um, with Alex Abel. And he was talking about how, um, you know, he just took one of his colleagues out to lunch, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to just try and get on the same page and find that common ground. Because once you find that common ground on, on a personal level, rather than, you know, on a transactional level, like here's some stuff I need from you, mm -hmm. I think 
we're going to get together a bit more. So, you know, the, the, that's where that donut element comes into play or lunch or whatever, right? But it's, it's more along the lines of let's, let's take, even take UX and CR out of the equation, get to know someone on a personal level, find that common ground and then leverage that common ground to, you know, get together and make that difference. That's, I think, my take on that. I completely agree with that. I know you're trying to wrap up, Manuel, but I just want to say that I think that that's a really good way. That's a really good way, despite how your company is organized or the walls that are created because of hierarchical, uh, the, the way your company is structured, is to find a way to make that connection despite that. And that's a really good way to approach it, in my opinion, because you might not always have the resource time dedicated uh, to work together, but um, all boats will rise. That, that's going to be my takeaway from this. Yeah, everyone has lunch at some point, right? So yeah, I think <laughs> during that lunch break, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, uh, Un, any any final thoughts you want to wrap up on? Um, also, I would like to say that we need to ha celebrate each other's work more and not just try to pick it apart. Uh, because realizing that uh, what Zero does is good for my users. It, it's going to help me in my in my uh, collaboration, and I think the opposite way too. It's like trying to figure out what's good about a design that you're just about to start optimizing is uh, uh, a really good thing, so that you don't like pick at things that are actually holding the idea together. It's uh, well, that's interesting. So rather than going and you know, if if you're getting something to critique, rather than going at the mm -hmm. negative. Of things first actually celebrate what actually works for that first build it up and then maybe say okay maybe this could yeah. do with tweaking yeah yeah so there you go and if you can and if you can see what's good about it you can maybe tell the person who did it this is what i really like about this and then you will have a way better working relationship as well nice nice that, those are some really good tips over there so for everyone listening here's my kind of task for you is don't just you know listen to this and forget about it. Actually, take these um, learnings from from this po uh, podcast and go and put it into action, right? Uh, because that's how you're going to see real change. We're trying to spark real change with this podcast, you know, that culture of experimentation, all that kind of stuff. But really, that only happens when you take the time out and you know make the effort. And the effort's really not that much in this case. It's like talking to people, eating stuff, eating food. <laughs> it's really fun stuff. And, and from that, you know, you build that foundation to really get, get some really good collaboration going and celebrate, you know, each other's work rather than breaking it down. You can critique on it, but first celebrate because then that puts you in a better position in a better working relationship, as Boon said. Uh, so we're going to wrap up over here. Um, Val, thanks for joining me again. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And Un, it was a pleasure having you on, on um, Conversion Nations. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights. I hope you do get to experiment a lot more. Uh, go forth and experiment. <laughs> and <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, this is Manuel da Costa from Effective Experiments. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversion Nations. If you want to catch any of the previous episodes, you can go on to uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, and Stitcher. And you can also, <laughs> a Spotify plug <laughs> And um, if you want to watch the video versions of this, especially that 3D 
uh, finger poking thing which Un did, uh, you can check us out, uh, check out the video version on EffectiveExperiments.com. This is Manuel de Costa saying bye. Thanks for listening. See ya. You've been listening to Conversionations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversionations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.